Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 32. Last week, I continued working my way through the Egyptian New Kingdom, covering the first two Thutmoses and the female pharaoh, Queen Hatshepsut. So the period between about 1506 and 1458 BC. This week, I'm spending the entire episode on Thutmose III, the pharaoh who would have been ruling in 1450 BC, when many believed the Exodus, found in the second book of the Old Testament, occurred. So let's get started. As I told of in the last episode, the female pharaoh Hatshepsut began as the co-regent for the toddler king, Thutmose III. But soon, she would rule the kingdom, essentially solely. She would eventually, like we all will, meet what is our common fate. And with her death, her stepson and nephew, one and the same, would solely assume the throne. Thutmose III was the sixth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, which of course was part of the new kingdom. He would either be co-regent our sole ruler for about 54 years, beginning when he was only two years old. But like I covered in the last episode, during his first 22 years, Hepsetsut was the primary ruler. Keep in mind that when his stepmother was on the throne, he wasn't completely powerless. Apparently, he was the commander of Egypt's armies, and the experience gained in this position would serve him well when he would rule in his own right. Overall, his reign was from 1479 to 1425 BC. Remembering back to my last episode and the problem with the dating schemes, there are some dating conventions that date his reign to between 1504 and 1450 BC. And, since I've been generally referring to the Exodus as having occurred in 1450 BC, this would mean he was the pharaoh at that time. I'll get to the dating of the Exodus and the range of dates as well as theories in the next episode. After the death of Hepshepsut, when number three would become the sole ruling pharaoh of the kingdom, he established the largest empire Egypt had ever seen. He would conquer territory from Naya in northern Syria to the fourth cataract of the Nile in Nubia. This is the land that is found today in parts of Egypt, Sudan, Libya, Israel, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, a small part of Saudi Arabia, and even the southeastern part of Turkey. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let's address what's known about the relationship between the co-regents. For many years, it was assumed that Thutmose despised his stepmother. This theory was based on the fact that in many instances, an attempt has been made to remove her name from inscriptions and monuments. An attempt made by chisel, or in extreme cases, by hammer. Many of these attempted erasures were initiated towards the end of Thutmose's reign, and may have been done so by his son and heir, Amenhotep II. The theory proposed that Thutmose did not like being in her shadow, when he had been crowned the leader long before he could remember. To him, he had always been the leader of Egypt, forever, and dear old stepmom was merely getting in the way. This assessment of the situation, though, is perhaps too basic. It ignores that while Hatshepsut was pharaoh, Thutmose number three was successful in his own right. He was an accomplished general, perhaps their most successful. 
and the queen giving him control over at least a portion of the army was a strong signal that she did not fear a coup. He was also a celebrated athlete, author, historian, botanist, and architect. Keep in mind that the attempted removals of Hatshepsut's name from monuments was really sporadic and nowhere near complete, hence why so many images of her survived. So why would there have been an attempt to remove Hatshepsut's name later, after he had been ruling solely for decades? Joyce Tildesley, a 21st century British archaeologist, proposes that Thutmose may have not been operating from a position of attempting to erase her completely. Instead, he may have wanted her to only have been recognized as a regent while he was young, in a fashion similar to other female rulers that were historical to him. This would also serve the purpose of further legitimizing his claim to the throne, power passing from his father, Thutmose II, to him. Bolstering this theory is that her name, when it was removed, was removed from public monuments, not from private ones. According to Tildesley, Thutmose may have wanted to remove the stain of a female ruler, since it could also have been interpreted as being against the Egyptian religion. This, too, could have undermined his own authority. Who knows? Back to what Thutmose III actually accomplished during his rule. Inscriptions dating to his reign were largely concerned with his military prowess. Many historians consider Thutmose III to be a military genius, at least when compared to the contemporaries he would face. He would conduct at least 15 campaigns in 20 years, most with the goal of expanding the territory of the kingdom, with many of the same historians figuring he was ancient Egypt's greatest expansionist. His annals record that he captured at least 350 cities. His typical tactic to defeat these cities was to take on one at a time, and either lay siege, or more preferably a straight-out attack, until the town would submit to his authority. That way, his army would never face a superior force. Incrementalism. And in doing so, he made Egypt the regional superpower with territory that ranged from the southwest Asian regions of southern Syria and Canaan in the east of his empire, to Nubia in the south. He would, like his grandfather, Thutmose I, cross the Euphrates. In his case, he would do so while pursuing the Mitanni. More on that in a second. We owe what we know of Thutmose number 3 because of one man, his royal scribe and army commander, a man named Thonuni, who would record all of Thutmose's conquest. He also owed a debt of gratitude to the Hyksos because of the weapons they brought to Egypt. Weapons such as horse-drawn chariots, composite bows, scale armor, and the like. And in the years that had passed since the departure of the Hyksos, the Egyptians had both mastered these weapons and improved on them. Owing to these advantages, he faced little resistance from his enemies. But it wasn't quite that simple, and the stories recorded are worthy of covering. Now, I mentioned in the last episode that Egypt's enemies tried to take advantage of transitions in power. When Thutmose's predecessor, and let's just call her that, even though we know it's far more complicated. Anyway, when his predecessor Hepsetsut died, the king of Kadesh sent his army to Megiddo, 
Kadesh was a city in what is today Syria, essentially on their border with Lebanon. Megiddo is a city that is today in Israel, so south of Syria and towards Egypt. The Greeks called Megiddo Armageddon, and yes, it's the same city as the one found in the book of Revelation. It's the place in the book of Revelation, at least according to some interpreters, where the kings of the whole world would assemble for battle, a last battle. This battle, the one fought by the Egyptians, was long past in history before the book of Revelation was written. So, definitely not the final battle. When Thutmose learned of the Kadeshians' offensive offensive, he gathered his own army and sent them from Egypt over the Sinai, up the coast, then to Megiddo. According to the records, the total time elapsed was about three months from when Kadesh invaded Megiddo to when the Egyptians arrived, which, given the context, is really quick. After all, the Kadeshians would have to invade, then the news would have to reach Egypt, an army mustered, departed Egypt, traveled across the Sinai and up the coast, and finally arrived. Of all the campaigns and battles his troops would face during his reign, this first one was most likely the largest. His army would travel through a dangerously narrow mountain pass to reach the battlefield. As it turns out, the enemy did not think he would take such a dangerous route, and he arrived at the plain of Esther Elon to the rear of the enemy. Now, keep in mind that both armies are estimated to number about 10,000 men, but the Egyptians may have had more. Working against them, though, the Egyptians were far from home, which would stretch their supply lines rather thin. They did have one thing on their side, though, the element of surprise. The Kadeshians were not only surprised, but were caught flat-footed. And such a disadvantage led to a rout. After their victory, his troops paused to plunder the enemy. And this pause allowed the Kadeshians to escape into the walled city of Megiddo. Thutmose was forced to besiege the city, and the siege worked, but only after seven or eight months. The campaign drastically changed the political environment in the ancient Near East. But taking Megiddo, Thutmose gained control over all of northern Canaan, and the Syrian princes were obligated to send tributes to the pharaoh. But that's not all they sent. They would also be forced to send their sons as hostages to Egypt. I'll get to that tactic in a minute. The victory led to other kingdoms recognizing the growing power of the Egyptians. The Assyrian, Babylonian, and Hittite kings all sent Thutmose official correspondence along with gifts. The only kingdom that wouldn't do this were the Mitanni, who would soon be in his sights. What are recorded as his next three military campaigns, so his second, third, and fourth, were far less grand. In fact, to call them military campaigns is being a bit loose with the phrase. Overall, he sent his army around acting as an in-person collection agency, ensuring that the required tributes were actually paid. It seems he had learned from his grandfather's mistake of leaving the territory with nothing more than hollow promises. While the army was making the rounds, they did something a bit different. Similar to the 19th century U.S. Lewis and Clark expedition of the recently acquired Louisiana Territory, the Egyptian army cataloged the animals and plants found in Canaan. 
How do we know this? Give me a minute. Sometime around the fourth campaign, the troops would construct a fortification in southern Lebanon, and such an investment demonstrates an intent to hold the territory and not be an absentee landlord. The next three campaigns were again in Canaan, specifically focused on the Phoenician cities found in Syria and Kadesh. In most of the battles, he would take a city, plunder its goods, and burn their crops, all while sending the message that it's better to pay tribute than to be laid waste to. When he fought in southern Syria, he would resupply his troops with his navy, shipping goods across the Mediterranean to a port, possibly Byblos. He would use this port later, in his sixth campaign, when he would send troops via the sea, landing in Byblos and fighting through Kadesh. And because he sent his army over water, he did not have to deal with potentially rebellious cities in Canaan. He had a bigger problem with the Kadeshians. He could deal with the Canaanites later. Thutmos was growing weary of frequent rebellions, so he devised a radical plan. He knew that the rebellions were not the result of an uprising of the general populace, but were instead the product of a disgruntled nobility, nobility who are usually aligned with the Mitanni. To stop future rebellions, Thutmose began taking hostages from the cities of Syria. He found that by taking family members of these key people to Egypt as hostages, he could drastically increase their loyalty to him, or at least make them think twice before rebelling again. In many cases, he would take the king's oldest son, the crown prince, and heir apparent. This carried far more weight than a monetary tribute. But that wasn't the only strategy employed to reduce rebellions in his empire. Syria would rebel again, this time in his 31st year. So, for his seventh campaign, he overtook their port of Ulaza and other smaller Phoenician ports. He landed his army at the port and smote the rebellion. And then he employed his new strategy. This time, he would seize their grain stores and repurpose the cereal for his army along with the Egyptian administration that was now ruling in Syria. And in doing so, the native Syrian population was not only left impoverished, but were also starving. And a starving people have a hard time organizing a rebellion. Once the Syrian cities were finally subdued, he turned his focus on the Mitanni. This group ruled an area that is today in northern Syria and southeastern Turkey. To get to them, he would have to cross the Euphrates River, just like his grandfather had. For this campaign, he sailed his army to Byblos, then crossed Syria, employing his typical raiding, pillaging, and seizing supplies along the way. Curiously, he knew he would have to cross the river, so he took river vessels, really small boats, with him, as he crossed the desert land. He then continued northward, conquering for the first time the cities of Aleppo and Carchemish, when he finally came to the Great River, because he had brought his boats along with him, he was able to cross it with ease. The Mitanni, like the Kadeshians in the previous campaign, were surprised when his army showed up completely unexpectedly. Victory was easy. Thutmose met little resistance and again defeated city after city, pillaging along the way. According to Egyptian records, the Mitanni nobility shook in fear while hiding in caves. But keep in mind that this is how the Egyptians recorded it. 
there could be some embellishment. Legend has it that he erected a second stele commemorating his crossing of the Euphrates. Right next to the stele his grandfather, the I, had erected several decades prior. And if you remember back to the last episode, his grandfather's stele has never been found. Neither has his. The Matani loosely organized a militia, but it was of little use. He would make his way back through Syria, and again like his grandfather, he participated in an elephant hunt. Before leaving, he would demand tributes, then he returned to Egypt with the spoils of victory. His next expeditions were back to Syria, but overall both appear to have been relatively small-scale, fighting the Canaanites and the Mitanni. They were impressive enough, though, that the Hittites would continue to send the requisite tributes. Nothing has been uncovered about the 11th, and little is known about the 12th campaign, except that he received wild game and unknown minerals as either tributes or spoils. The 13th campaign was in Nukasha, which is thought to have been near where Turkey, Lebanon, and Syria converge. He fought the nomadic Shash'u in his 14th campaign, but since they were nomadic, the actual location is relatively unknown, but is assumed to have been somewhere among where they normally roamed, so in the neighborhood between Lebanon, the Levant, and Edom. And these skirmishes and larger battles would continue for essentially all of his tenure as Pharaoh. His final battle in Western Asia occurred in his 42nd year when the Mitanni set about spreading discord and fomenting revolt all across Syria. Thutmose once again marched his troops north, up the coastal road, putting down rebellions in the Arka Plain, then marched up to Tunip. After retaking Tunip, he made his way to Gadesh, again. Upon arriving, he fought, then destroyed three Mitanni garrisons. With victory secured, he returned to Egypt. But, surprisingly, he did not take Kadesh. So, it was a military victory, but not a complete success. The reasons for his withdrawal before destroying the Mitanni are still unclear. And be sure to take note of one thing. Most of these campaigns in his first 42 years on the throne, and certainly the significant engagements, were all in Canaan. Thutmose's last campaign was fought in his 50th year, and, for this battle, he would turn his attention south to Nubia, but only as far as the fourth cataract of the Nile. But that location shouldn't be minimized. As he had done in the Middle East, no prior Egyptian king had gone as far as he did in Nubia. And with that is a rather short history of his military accomplishments. But, as you would be correct in suspecting, especially for an administration as long as his was, his reign wasn't solely focused on the military. He is also considered a great builder, having constructed over 50 temples, but not nearly that many can be positively identified. We do know of their existence through the extensive historic records recorded by his scribes. In addition to the temples, he had many tombs built for the nobility, and these were done with craftsmanship that exceeded that previously seen in Egypt. He commissioned Egypt's only known set of Puritic pillars, with these two large columns standing simply as monuments, instead of being part of a set of columns whose primary function was to uphold the roof of a building. 
a building known as a Jubilee Hall, which was intended for use in the said festival, probably occurring after his 30th year, was also groundbreaking in that it is the oldest known building created in the style of a basilica, with rows of pillars supporting the ceiling on each side of the main aisle. The ceiling over the middle two rows was higher than that of the outer rows, creating windows where the ceiling split. Most of his major construction efforts were focused on the temple at Karnak, including the dismantling and rebuilding of several of the pre-existing structures. Also at Karnak were two smaller rooms, which I touched on earlier, that contained the relief images from the survey of plants and animals of Canaan, all from his third military campaign. At another location, he planned on erecting what can be best translated to as the unique obelisk. It was designed to stand alone, instead of as part of a pair, and that alone was unusual. Another unusual quality was that it was the tallest obelisk ever successfully cut, but it was not erected in his lifetime. Instead, his grandson, Thutmose IV, would finally have it set up. It was taken to Rome by Emperor Constantinus II in 357 AD, so roughly 1800 years after it was originally cut. Let that time period sink in for a minute. It would be erected at the Circus Maximus, but with the fall of the empire, it too would fall and be buried by debris. Pope Sixtus X in 1587 would have it dug up and re-erected in its present location, a few blocks from the Circus Maximus, where it is known as the Lateran Obelisk, named such because of its proximity to the Basilica of St. John Lateran. It's currently about 122 feet or 37 meters tall, slightly shorter than its original height due to damage from its collapse. As a further note, Rome is chock full of ancient Egyptian obelisks, most removed to the Eternal City during the many centuries of the Empire. Another great place to find ancient Egyptian obelisks is Istanbul, which was known as Constantinople when it was the capital of the Roman Empire. One of Thutmose's obelisks can be found at what used to be the Hippodrome of that city. And with that, back to Thutmose. During his final two years of rule, he appointed his son and successor, Amenhotep II, as his co-regent. His firstborn son, and heir to the throne, Amenahet, died during his reign. The actual cause of death for his firstborn son has not yet been conclusively determined, but it may have occurred near the time of the Exodus. Speculate away. Amenhotep would serve as his junior co-regent for just over two years before the death of his father. When Thutmose III died, in almost his 54th year on the throne, and his 30th as sole ruler, he was buried in the Valley of the Kings, just like his recent predecessors. But his mummy was later moved, like so many from the adjacent dynasties, to the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut. Even in death, he could not escape the legacy of his stepmother, and the condition of the mummy was less than ideal, apparently having been damaged by ancient grave robbers. In fact, his mummy was in about as worse shape of all those found in the mortuary temple, but it did yield a few clues. He was about 5 feet 4 inches, 
or 162 centimeters tall, but the mummy's feet were missing, so when alive, he was no doubt a little taller. And his face wasn't very similar to the way the royal artist had depicted him. According to Gaston Maspero, a French Egyptologist who examined the remains in the late 19th century, his forehead was abnormally low, the eyes deeply sunk, the jaw heavy, the lips thick, and the cheekbones extremely prominent. It's thought he did look like his relatives, though. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up the New Kingdom with Thutmose's successor and son, Amenhotep II. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. And for those of you that haven't, I'll give you a second to think about your reasons. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.